This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight is the second in a series about medical trauma. I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Nancy Cassim Adams about pediatric medical trauma. Dr. Nancy Cassim Adams is a psychologist and is associate director for behavioral research at the Center for Injury Research and Prevention at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's also associate research professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Since 1998, her research has focused on post-traumatic stress in ill and injured children and their parents. She currently heads an international project to develop better prediction tools for PTSD after acute child trauma. Dr. Kasim Adams also co-directs the Center for Pediatric Traumatic Stress, an intervention development center in the U.S. National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Welcome to Safe Space, Nancy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So let's start by uh, talking about the whole idea of pediatric medical trauma. We tend, I think, in our culture to think of trauma as something associated with returned vets, with rape or child abuse. We don't immediately, or even natural disasters, we don't tend to think of trauma as something that happens to sick children. And I'd love to hear from you how you began to realize that that medical trauma was, in fact, a a large source of trauma for kids. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, I think we're we're used to thinking about uh, what kids might need if there's been a natural disaster or a catastrophe or something that affects a whole community, or it's just very visible and obvious to the to the world. And when the child has a cancer diagnosis or there's a car crash, um, I mean, one of the ways we think of that is kind of this private individual catastrophe. I mean, suddenly for that child and family, at least, the world has changed and it's a very different place. And I think that working in a, certainly working in a pediatric hospital, we have lots of chances to see those individual catastrophes unfolding day after day for the patients that we see. And maybe is there is there just an example of of a story that you could tell me that just kind of helps me get a feel for that? Yeah, well, I'm thinking in particular of one eight year old little boy who was um, right just having a normal day, doing what kids do, riding on his bicycle um, in the park with a friend. The friend's kind of on the back of the bike and jumps off. You know what eight and nine year old boys will do, <laughs> and the bike shoots into the street, and this little boy who was, ends up as our patient is hit by a by a car. Um, and the car drives away. Oh. Um, and so you can imagine the scene, the mother getting the call. Um, who's, she's not there at the time. Um, she later talked about her terror, hearing that hearing that her child had been hurt. Um, luckily, she's able to be in the ambulance with him. Um, one of the things we often will ask parents is kind of, and kids, um, in the course of our research, trying to understand their experiences. What's the worst, what was the worst part of this for you? And then what's helped to make it better? And interesting for the child, the worst part was waking up in the hospital in the middle of the night, one of those later days. It wasn't actually the accident itself. Waking up and finding that that he was alone? Waking up alone in the middle of the night in the hospital room, yeah. Yeah. And for the mom, the worst part was actually kind of understanding that this car had driven away, that someone had hurt her child and and driven away. Um, And so I guess... Kind of shatters your sense of human beings. Yeah, it shatters your sense of safety. and and it also kind of points out that we don't always know what will be the hardest part for any particular child or family member, and we really have to ask to know that. Um, it might not be what we'd expect, um, and that might be very different for the parent and the child or for anyone else in the family. Um, it seems, it makes sense to me, one of the things about trauma, I think, always, is that it shatters our sense of 
the world is safe, but e- even about sort of human nature. Yeah, this absolutely. Can happen. And, w- and this is a, that's a particular instance of a of a human being involved in a lot of medical trauma. That's not the case. Um, but yeah, the particular thing that is hard for this person to deal with may may be anything about it. You know, for parents um, of kids with cancer, it may be the underst- really understanding the life threat. Actually, some of my colleague um, Ann Kazak's research has shown that for parents, it's a lot more about the life threat and understanding that the big problems that come with cancer. And for kids, often it's the it's getting those painful procedures or losing your hair, the much more immediate kind of thing. So it can be. There's, there's developmental parts of, of um, what this experience is like for a three-year-old or a six-year-old or a 12-year-old may be quite different. Um, there's things about uh, whether you're the person it's happening to, the patient, or whether you're someone in their family. Yes. Um, but it can certainly be hard for, not just for the patient, for their entire family. Yeah, so and one of the things that strikes me is, um, so the, the experience, while, while everybody's focused on the experience of this accident, if we just stay with this example, their, their experience of it is so very different that people are having very different experiences of the same thing. Yep. And I can That's imagine, true. is it for you as, as someone trying to intervene and help, is it sometimes a challenge in your work to realize that, that people may be responding very differently or having very different experiences of the same thing? Well, I think, I think it's a lesson that, well, that mental health professionals and, and health care providers, I mean, as the professionals, I think the message is the one we have. In a lot of cases, not specific to trauma, is we need to ask and then listen and find out. Um, you know, it's also true that most most families, you know, even hearing that experience, terrifying as it is, the, it's most likely that this child and, and his parent will do well eventually. You know, most families do with some support, with support of the professionals around them, but certainly with their own coping strategies and families kind of pulling together in crisis. You know, again, the, going with research stats, about 80% of, of families and kids will, will do fine six months mm-hmm. later. But there's a significant minority, maybe 15 to 20% or so, who will still be struggling six months later. And um, so when, we're, when we are seeing folks in those early days, we want to be cognizant that these changes might be happening, that they might be having some traumatic stress responses, that there might be really difficult and terrifying things going on, and do what we can to deal with that. But we don't want to see this as, um, let's say, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder when folks are scared in the early days and weeks after something. And so if we think about that, if we think sort of with this 15 to 20% of families mm-hmm. that where there might be ongoing difficulty, what does that look like? What, what if someone, you know, if I was a parent with a child who'd had some very difficult uh, medical mm-hmm. experience, what would I be on the lookout for? Well, thinking about this, the same uh, family that we were talking about earlier, when we talked with this little boy six months later, he tells us that he's having bad dreams, um, that there was a time when he saw his cat almost get hit by a car, or he thought that might happen, and he kind of froze, um, that he's mm-hmm. sleeping with his teddy bear again, even though he, he's eight and had stopped doing that. So I think that there can be things that um, might be very obvious to parents. You may be aware that your child's having bad dreams, or they may not be so obvious. Um, so the challenge as a parent is to kind of stay in touch with what's happening with your child. Um, again, not to pathologize or see every little response as a sign of, um, of big trouble, but to just be aware of how a child is doing and look for changes in behavior, um, look for a child who's still upset or jumpy or worried, even though it's been more than a month, um, changes in school, 
um, right. So you're looking kind of not interested in doing stuff they used to want to do. Right. So what I'm hearing is in some ways is it's less direct than it might be with a, an adult. Say it's not the child saying, you know, mommy, I'm still afraid about this. It's it's really noticing changes in behavior. It's, that are I clues. think it is. And I think taking the time to ask, at least occasionally, not to grill your child regularly about how they're doing, right. but to taking the time to ask and listen and to talk very, um, you know, following your child's lead, but being open to talking about what happened. Um, I think that um, kids often also want to kind of protect their parents. So they may not just come up and say, I'm really upset, because often they see that parents are still upset as well, and they don't want to add to that. Um, and, it's, and it's a really hard thing to know what's going on inside someone else, even your own child. So, so it's, it's a hard job. Um, we have often found that, that uh, parents and children don't agree very well when we ask them about how children are doing. So when we look at the research data, we see that um, parents often kind of can assume that their child must be responding the way they are. Um, and um, the data also tell us that that's probably not a very good bet. But I, but I completely understand as a parent how hard it is to know what's going on inside my child and how I might, might kind of figure that probably they're responding like I do. And so being open, open to thinking that, they, that their response might be different than mine. And is there any pattern in that? Like if, is it usual that one of them is actually having a hard time than the other, or is there no real pattern to it? I don't know that there's really a pattern. There's a, you know, certainly... It's a little more likely if one person's having a hard time that the other one is as well, but it's very common for it to be just one or the other family member and not both. Um, it's very poignant for me to hear you say that the child is often protecting the parent. Mm-hmm. It's very touching. You know, here's this child who may be suffering some very painful illness, and uh, they're so concerned to take care of their parents. Mm-hmm. And they see that other people are, I mean, it depends, of course, on the situation, but when they see that their parent is worried or upset, they often don't want to add to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so as professionals, we often, we certainly want to talk with parents and children together, but we, we want to have a little bit of time where we're talking just with the child and, and really listening to hear their, to hear their, um, their experience um, without their parent there so that they're not, um, uh, not to keep a secret from the parent, but so that they're not uh, minimizing what they're feeling in order, you know, sort of in front of their parent. Yes. Um, So I want to talk a little bit now about the child's experience specifically. Um, You said that parents often are focused on the sort of the threat of loss of life of the mm -hmm. child, which makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And you said the child is often focused on um, the really painful procedures they have to go through. Um, And I'd love to, to hear about how pediatric practice is evolving. I know that you're very involved in initiatives that are, um, you know, spreading the word throughout medical centers in the country about this. Um, but I, I even recall, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Nancy, but my memory in medical school was learning that historically it was thought that young children didn't yet ha- feel pain. Is, is there some legacy in medical practice around mm. sort I of... Think we're, I think we're getting a lot better at pain. Um, not perfect, obviously. And that certainly is a risk factor for post-traumatic stress, and so it's something that we really welcome when we think about, um, you know, trauma-informed care or care, pediatric care that keeps traumatic stress in mind, mm. um, really optimizing pain management, making sure that we're doing everything we can to control kids' pain is, is a part, is a piece of that. Yeah. I think that we're doing a lot better at pain management. I mean, one of the reasons, and this is a great one for adults and for kids, is that the, the organization that accredits hospitals now requires um, 
lots of good documentation and, and excellence in practice and pain management. So JCO requirements include that. And so often when there's policies like that, it makes everyone sort of get their game better. <laughs> and so yes. people are doing a lot better at that. They talk about pain as the fifth vital sign. Um, you know, the other movement that I think is very um, congruent with trauma-informed care is the movement toward family-centered care and really involving families, and for kids that mostly means parents, involving them in understanding what's going on um, in the care itself where possible, giving as much control as possible to patients and families. Um, that certainly helps a lot with um, for both for the parent's own response and also for the child to have their parent there and present for as much of of medical procedures as possible. I know. I remember hearing of a of a NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit in New Hampshire, where they actually every little isolate for the newborn has a bed uh, beside it, mm-hmm. and I think it's one the only one in in the northern New England states that has that. But I think about my friends who've had babies in the NICU, how just terrible it's been, and there's been nowhere there for them to sleep or stay mm-hmm. overnight. And mm-hmm. so this movement towards family care, it feels like it's maybe early, but it has a capacity to make such a difference. Yeah, I think there's a lot of movement, and I think there's a growing comfort. It's, we're not we're not all the way there yet, and it varies a lot probably based on whether you're in a, a child-centered or a pediatric hospital or a, a large community hospital that's treating children and adults. But there's certainly, in general, of movement toward parent presence during procedures, parent presence in the ambulance. You know, and it's and it's a, a complex issue in some ways. In general, wh- the default should be that parents are present, but not every not every parent can handle it. Um, I think we also need to give parents permission to say, "This is just not something I can do. I think I'm going to freak out and make it worse for my child." And then the professionals can step up and support that child, or or find another adult in the family who maybe can handle it. Um, I also think it it behooves the professionals around there. And, and think of the timing, particularly in an emergency room, where you've got to act quickly. And, and we want them to do everything they can to, to do the medical procedures. But if, if in the course of that they can give the parent something to do and give some quick instruction, you know, sit here, hold her hand, have her look in your eyes, and you do that and we'll be over here. Some quick instruction can really make a difference because we want parents present, but we want them present in a way that's that's not traumatizing to them, to the parent, and that's helpful to the child. I was and we know that distraction is a great idea. And yes. um, there's research actually showing this, is, this probably goes against some of the things I did as a parent when my children were small, but that lots of reassurance from a parent during a painful procedure probably increases the child's pain. And what do we want to do as a mom? You want to say, oh, it's going to be okay. But um, best practice really is to just be distracting during an immediate painful procedure. So interesting. Okay. Let's talk about that because that's sort of counterintuitive. So yeah. the parent reassuring the child is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. There's some research to suggest that, yeah, there's, it's pretty consistent findings that um, lots of emotional reassuring. And, you know, I, we're speculating as to why, but it might be that it sends a message that this is something to worry about. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> right, because why would you be reassuring me so much unless you were worrying? That's right. <laughs> but perhaps it's even an easier job, and it's just to be very strong. Your child's going through this. Do something to distract them. Do it, you mm-hmm. know, depending on what's happening and where on the child's body. You know, talk about something else. Play that video game. Um, yes. Just be distracting. And, um, um, you know, that's the thing that struck me in, in reading some of the research papers that you've written. I was struck by the sort of the, the, in some ways it almost seemed like a conflict between reports of what 
what put a child at risk for traumatic symptoms seemed to be the separation from a parent during a procedure. Mm -hmm. But conversely, what seemed to put a parent at risk for acute stress symptoms was Mm -hmm. being present (laughs) for all these procedures. Parents, it's a double-edged sword. I think most of us would want to be there for two reasons. Um, If it helps our child, then even if it's stressful for us, we'll deal with that. And then the second reason is that it, hard as it might be to be there, the imagination of what's happening if we're not there might might feel worse, even if we even if we completely trust the healthcare team. Yes. So I think it is more, a little more complex on the parent side. Yes. But I think the preponderance of the evidence and what feels better to most parents and what what actually works well for the for the healthcare team too, once they're used to it, um, is to have parents present when possible. But again, really giving permission to that parent who just um, for whatever reason isn't able to be there. Um, and so healthcare providers need to be good at quickly making that um, that decision. Um, it is, in, and in the end, of course, anything that puts the the uh, life saving medical care at risk, we just has that has to come first, of course. Right. Um, and I think when we when we think about what we'd like providers to do, it's not for every nurse or every physician to become a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker. It's that just in the course of doing their own job, they are aware of traumatic stress and aware of how this might be impacting kids and parents and make some simple shifts in things like this, again, that are often happening already, um, and involve and support parents, remembering that child's perspective. Um, you know, we've come up with a simple tool that seems to resonate for healthcare teams because um, often, again, in the midst of a busy medical practice, you need something quick to remember. And we talk about after the ABCs, you know, after the basics or after airway, breathing, circulation, the first things, then think about DEF. Let's and talk about DEF. Distress, emotional support, and the family. Um, okay, okay, and what's the difference between distress and emotional support? Well, distress is remembering, as we're talking about pain and fears and worries, Uh and what's this child going through, both on the emotional and the physical side. Emotional support is thinking about what what this patient or this child needs in terms of the supports that are there for them, who's there to provide emotional support for them. How do we support their parent in doing that, or how do we do that if there's not someone else around? And then the F for family is just to remember everybody else, to remember the parents um, and and help, help them to deal with their own reactions to what's going on. And do you have, you know, I'm struck by um, my own experience as a parent where um, I was asked not to be in the recovery room when my child was waking up from a procedure. Mm. And my child had already had one prior procedure in which I had come in after he'd woken up and was just hysterical because he woke up alone and in pain Mm. and frightened. So the second time... I knew the way to the recovery room and went and sat there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was not going to be moved come hell or high water. And the nurse was clearly, um, I'm deeply grateful to her. She was very flexible and finally mm-hmm. allowed me to stay. But it was clear she was worried about me being there, that I might get in the way. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had a little talk and <laughs> she finally agreed. And it was it was radically different for my child. Mm-hmm. It was much smoother. There were no hysterics, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I was I was saddened at how, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm an empowered consumer. I knew my way to the recovery room already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still had to really, it was a, a hard sell. And um, it pained me how, how, therefore, it is the norm that children do wake up alone after procedures of frightened and in pain and scared. And um, I was curious, with, in your work, do you have 
a handout that that caregivers could ha- to could give to parents about you mm. need to stay out of the way. This is what you don't reassure. You can distract because I'm learning so much from you right now that I didn't know then, and I, I'm struck. You had mentioned well, to me something like we do like, have material. We do have things for parents. Um, I'm not sure they address exactly what, like sort of how to be an advocate for your child or how to make sure you get in the recovery room. I think, <laughs> I think the real answer to that is really more systemic change. And I think a lot of hospitals are already making those changes, um, not all. Um, and I think that works. That policy works best when it really is a policy so that everyone's on the same page because uh, yes. you're absolutely right. It should not be up to the, the mom or dad in that moment to, to have to summon up all their strength and... Um, and you shouldn't have to be a physician to get to be right, there. Right. You get to be there. Um, so that works best when um, when facilities just embed that in their in their policy that that's what they do, and then and then everyone knows how to handle it. Um, but we do have some we have some great information for parents, and almost everything we've ever made is downloadable from our websites, various websites. Um, we have one focused for parents of injured children called aftertheinjury.org, just like great. it sounds. Um, there's also a website for providers called healthcaretoolbox.org. Again, just like it sounds, no punctuation. And on there, there's also a section for parents and kids um, and lots of downloadable handouts. In particular, based on what you just asked about, there's um, a couple of little one-page tip sheets um, that are about when your child's at the hospital, while your teen's at the hospital, um, what to think about after the hospital when you go home, um, we have um, handouts for teens and kids themselves, um, and most of our handouts are now in English and in Spanish. Um, Wonderful. So there's a lot of resources there, and we'd encourage people to go and check it out. And, and if you're a healthcare provider, check it out, and um, everything is there and, and freely downloadable. I went and looked at them and tr- took some of the quizzes and... Um, I was really impressed. It felt like they were just a wonderful, wonderful resource. I wish I had known about them earlier. Yeah, we have a quiz on aftertheinjury.org. And and while it's for parents of injured children, it would probably, and we've we've designed it for that based on the research around injury. But it might not be a bad basic guide for parents if something else is happening. There's a place where you can sort of say how long it's been since this happened and what are your child's responses, and you get some specific tips back um, Mm. based on the responses that you've put in for how to help your child in their recovery from injury, sort of the emotional recovery. That's wonderful. This is Dr. Ann on WMPG. This is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. Nancy Kasim Adams about pediatric medical trauma. I want to ask you now about a a treatment program that I know you've been really instrumental in in designing, uh, working with adolescents with cancer. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that program and how how it intervenes, how it aims to make a difference. Um, I think you're talking about SKIP, the Surviving Cancer Competently Intervention Program. And actually, that's the work of my colleague, Ann Kazak, here at, Ch- at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, it, there are two aspects of SKIP. One is for families where there's a new diagnosis of cancer, and uh, one is for families when cancer is over, um, when, they're, when treatment is over and kind of um, shoring up the family's um, supports and their sort of emotional health going forward when the treatment is over. And so for families who are newly diagnosed, um, what's, what, what the SKIP program does is meet with parents or caretakers several times during those early weeks after the diagnosis and really help them to kind of get a roadmap for their emotional journey through this um, cancer treatment and recovery in the same way that they're getting kind of a treatment, physical treatment roadmap for what their, their child's cancer treatment will look like. 
and then the program for um, for parents and 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 adolescents um, after treatment is over. It consists of multiple families coming together, usually on a one a one day, like a Saturday session, where a bunch of families will come together and have sort of a, the teen survivors meet in a group, and the moms in a group, and the dads in a group, and some sometimes siblings as well, and then the different family members coming together, and sort of leads families through an experience of a day where they learn a lot about um, sort of putting cancer in its place now that the treatment is over. Mm. Um, How do you help people do that? Well, I think it's about seeing that this is, um, for example, in the newly diagnosed program, actually looking at a little sort of an image of a roadmap and saying, so here's our family and here's cancer. This notion of cancer is kind of an unwelcome visitor Mm -hmm. Um, and that it's part of what we'll be dealing with, a huge part of what we'll be dealing with, but not the only thing in our family. And how do we imagine ourselves, um, you know, a year from now, um, where will cancer be? We need to give it its due, that it's going to be a huge thing, that there's often life threat here, that we may have really difficult times ahead, but how do we also pull on the strengths that we already have, um, not see this as, um, not not make light of it, but not not see it as the only thing about our family. And how do we reframe things that are terrifying to be, um, to also see our strengths and to mm-hmm. cope. The reason it's called surviving cancer competently is that we know that parents have a lot, fa- parents and families have a lot of strengths. Um, and this um, does not need to be um, the only thing, the only thing that defines them as a family. It feels very helpful. It feels also quite challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's wonderful that you have that. I, are you hoping to replicate that in other centers? Um, it has actually. Um, the Anne and her team um, have been doing some training of other teams in implementing this. Um, a couple of other hospitals have implemented the uh, the Skip program for cancer survivors and are beginning to implement the the Skip program for the newly diagnosed. Yeah, I'm struck in in reading some of your writing about the populations that seem to be particularly at risk. I I saw about cancer ICU. Patients, burn uh, survivors, mm-hmm. transplant. Are, are you hoping to also sort of generalize it to some of these other uh, s- serious medical illness kind of populations? Um, I think that's. I think that's certainly possible. I think what we've learned about medical trauma is that there are both these common elements that cross all kinds of things, whether it's a serious injury um, or a cancer diagnosis or a transplant or this scary asthma attack. Um, mm. There are elements that are in common, and then there are things that are specific to that illness course or that illness experience. And so in designing interventions, um, there's a lot we can do that's common to everything, just thinking about whether a child is frightened, thinking about how a parent is dealing with it, uh, for example, that are common. And then there are things that are specific. Um, that um, so, so in translating something like the SKIP program designed for cancer to another population, we need to think about what's, what are the common elements right. and what are things that might be special about, for example, going through transplant or dealing with um, repeated asthma or sickle cell attacks that are painful and scary and unpredictable. And yes. What's the difference from a, an acute injury that is um, you know, terrifying initially, but in general the course of recovery is, is, an, is an upward course? as opposed to some of these things where there's a lot more uncertainty or ups and downs. So, Nancy, we're going to have to end in a minute, but I want to ask, I want to end on a, on a more personal note. I know that you, as a uh, clinician, uh, you have a background in working with trauma mm-hmm. um, in non-medical contexts, and um, mm-hmm. 
and that you have this just really deep commitment and interest in working with people who have been traumatized. And I'd love to hear from you a little bit about what it is that draws you to this work. Well, I, I think I think the most important thing is it's just it is such an honor to see the resilience and the recovery and the struggle. Um, you know that that kids, even little kids, and and their parents and families go through when something really challenging happens, whatever that is, whether it's a medical thing or, as you said in the past, I've worked in in other sorts of trauma like sexual assault and domestic violence, but. Um, when we as human beings are faced with the most difficult, frightening things we could ever face, and then still put one foot in front of the other, keep going, find ways to care for each other. It's just an honor to be a part of that process. Um, mm. And so it's, you know, as a researcher, it's, it's, it's interesting to me intellectually, but as a human being, it's just um, always a privilege um, to, just to be there, to be even some small part of that, even to be listening to folks' experiences as a researcher. So, Nancy, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and on behalf of children and families and um, taking the time to do this interview. I want to ask you to tell me again those websites because they're really fantastic resources and I want to make sure that people sure. know how to find for them. parents, particularly parents of injured children, um, aftertheinjury.org, and you'll find all kinds of information, downloadable handouts, videos to watch, um, a little quiz. Um, and for healthcare providers, healthcaretoolbox.org. And again, lots of patient education materials, some links to the research, some links to training materials that you could use in an in-service, for example. Wonderful. Dr. Nancy Kasim adams thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. My thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Leonard for the music, and a special thanks to Neil McKenty tonight, the consultant for the show for all four years, who is currently a patient himself in the ICU, seriously ill. I'm sending out my thoughts and love and gratitude to him. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe there for a weekly link to the show. You can also email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com with a request for a future show. You can download us from the iTunes store through podcasts, and you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is The Watchdog.